The text for this morning's sermon is Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18, if you want to turn there. Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. And while you turn there, how, how long does it take to master something? Uh, how long does it take to perfect something, to perfect an ability? In, uh, in 2008, uh, the journalist and uh, author Malcolm Gladwell wrote a best-selling book. Maybe you've heard of it. It was called Outliers, The Story of Success. Uh, and this sold several thousand copies. In the book, he asked the question, uh, what's different about high achievers? What makes people who achieve so much in life different from the rest of us, essentially? And uh, it was a very popular book for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons it gained so much traction is that he looked at uh, uh, some, you know, I guess scientific studies and social scientific studies, and he also just looked at, you know, very successful people. And one of the claims he made in the book was that it takes 10,000 hours to master something. So he put a, he put a number on it. It takes, you, you need to practice for 10,000 hours if you want to become a master of something. And, and typically this takes about 10 years is what he said. So as you start to think of, you know, professional athletes and Olympic athletes and, and the most famous composers of history and, and, and uh, musical artists and uh, the most accomplished actors and actresses and successful business people and Fortune 500 company executives, uh, th- this, is what makes, this is what makes people so successful is is it's not merely just talent, but it's also this uh, all this all this practice that goes into crafting their uh, their their uh, their abilities. And so, anyways, it's been it's interesting. He said ten years is how long it takes. Ten thousand hours in about ten years. It's been about eight and a half years since he wrote the book. And since then, you've had all kinds of people come out uh, now claiming that he's wrong about this. Some people are saying, no, no, it takes way longer than ten thousand hours. And, uh, you find other people saying, no, no, it doesn't take that long. You can, you can do it in, in a much shorter time. And uh, regardless of whether he's right or wrong, what's interesting is that he really struck a chord with people. This, is, this gained a lot of traction. You had all kinds of blogs starting about uh, mastering a skill and you know, documenting their 10,000 hours. And uh, the, the chord that this struck with people is that we, we desire perfection. We desire to do things well. We desire to be able to master something and uh, Malcolm Gladwell really gave some people hope because uh, people started thinking, you know, some people heard 10,000 hours and thought, well, you know, that, that rules me out. There's no way I'll ever be able to, to do that. But on the other hand, uh, you had other people who heard 10,000 hours and, you know, that, that was a concrete number. So uh, 10,000 hours is 1,000 hours a year. Uh, it's 19 hours a week. It's less than three hours a day. You know, I could actually... I could actually master something. And we're the type of people who like to be able to do things well. We, we like perfection. We want to be able to perform uh, with perfection. So whether it's big things in life or small things in life, we, we want to be able to bake the perfect cake. We want to be able to host the perfect party. Uh, we want to be able to be the perfect parent. Uh, we want to be the perfect employee who can, can complete the perfect project. Uh, we want to be able to hunt and kill the perfect animal. Uh, we watch HGTV and we want to renovate the perfect room in our house perfectly so that it's, uh, it, it's as good as it could, it could possibly be. Gladwell reminded people in this book essentially of, uh, and he did so in an inspirational way uh, of the proverb that we all know is true. Not the biblical proverb, but just sort of the pro- proverb we all know. Practice makes perfect. Practice makes perfect. This morning, we're going to be challenged with something slightly different. What if I were to tell you suffering makes perfect? Now, that's, that's more counterintuitive. Practice makes perfect. That makes sense. If I practice something, that will lead to perfection. We tend not to think, if I want to reach perfection, I'll get there through suffering. It's, that's much more counterintuitive, but that, that is what we're going to find, uh, ironically, surprisingly, in Hebrews 2. Let's look at this text together. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. 
For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had, to be my, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to waste this time. We don't want to miss the weight of the opportunity to dwell on Your perfect and infallible words. And there is incredibly wonderful news in these infallible words in Hebrews 2. God, let this time not be wasted. Would You bless us? Would You Bless us with a desire to know you, to know what you have done for us. Would you bless us with even a desire to understand ourselves better in terms of what you say about us? God, would you put Jesus Christ on display for us this morning so that we can see him and and through seeing him be changed to become more like him. For, for your glory, God, first of all, and also for uh, the sake of our joy. Would you do this? We thank you for your perfect and infallible and inerrant word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at, uh, as we look at Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, uh, this just falls in. Uh, this falls at the end of two chapters that introduce the book of Hebrews, and it's just kind of helpful to kind of know going into this. Uh, in, in Hebrews one, uh, you you really have the divinity of Jesus put on display, the the godness of Jesus. You have all these uh, very high statements about who who Jesus is at the, at the beginning of chapter one. He's the heir of all things. He's the one through whom God created the world. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is God. Jesus is greater than even the mighty angels. And and, and the author goes to much length and and even artistically and beautifully puts Jesus on display as as God. So by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, Jesus is God. However, in chapter 2, the other aspect of Jesus is put on display just as much. If, If he pushes as hard as he can into Jesus' divinity and godness in chapter 1, and especially in these verses in chapter 2 this morning, he pushes into Jesus' humanity. Jesus is fully God and fully man here in Hebrews 1 and 2. And in Hebrews 1, he, he puts on the majestic glory of who Jesus is. Jesus is uh, majestically glorious as the Son of God and as the Son of David. And then as we turn to chapter 2, he warns the people here not to neglect Jesus' majestic glory. Don't neglect it. And then as we continue through the end of chapter 2 here, what we see in verses 5 through 9 is is Jesus' majestic glory is put on display uh, in his achieving complete dominion, where humans have failed to have complete dominion. And then this morning we see Jesus' majestic glory majestic glory put on display again in his attaining perfection through suffering. This is what we're going to emphasize and, and unpack. He, he attains perfection through suffering in his humanity. 
So the question for you this morning is, is whose glory do you live for? Whose glory do you live for? You live for the glory of something or someone. Whose glory do you live for? And the challenge of Hebrews 2, 10 through 18 this morning, I think, is live, live for the glory of the one who restores you, adopts you, and rescues you. Those are the kind of three main things we're going to take as we walk through this text together. Because Jesus attained perfection through suffering, he's able to restore us, as sons of glory, he's able to adopt us as his brother, and he is able to free us from captivity and slavery to sin and death and Satan. <clears throat> Excuse me. So let, let's look at verse 10. Let's look at this first one together here. Jesus restores believers as, as sons of glory. God is in the business, <clears throat> from the very beginning, God has been in the business of, of, of bringing sons to glory. So, so you were originally created to, to, be, to be a son of glory. That, that is, you're, you're created to be a child of God's glory who brings him glory. And then the problem is we don't do that, right? We, we have failed to bring God glory. As we look back in Genesis 1 and, and, the, and Psalm 8 is actually quoted in verses 5 through 9 of Hebrews 2, we see that humans were actually created to be royalty, uh, they were they were created to exercise complete dominion. That's that's what sons of glory are are, are created to do. But but we don't experience royalty. And instead, we experience slavery. We, we we have not experienced what we were originally created to be. We are slaves to fear and death, and we're captives to Satan and death. So so you can't be a you can't be a son of glory. If, if you're a slave doomed to death. It just doesn't work. Uh, regardless of what you think about Disney, Disney will never tell the fairy tale of the prince who comes to rescue the princess, and, and, and the story will never end, and the prince and the princess lived happily ever after as slaves doomed to death. No, no fairy tale's ever gonna, ever gonna end that way. It just doesn't work. You can't be a son of glory if you're a slave doomed to death. But, but there's good news. There's good news. And, and what we see in verses 5 through 9 and the verses immediately preceding our text this morning, we see that even though we don't see everything in subjection to us, even though we don't see everything in subjection to the people who are supposed to be the sons of glory, we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. So there's hope because after thousands of years of futility and suffering and slavery and failure, the original purpose for humanity has been fulfilled. It has been fulfilled. Uh, Jesus comes, he, he's given complete dominion, and he exercises, he actually exercises complete dominion over all creation. He, everything is placed underneath his feet, and so there's a sense in which the king has come, the king has conquered, and, and, and the king has now been crowned with glory and honor. And this is good news because this is something new, right? We haven't, we haven't seen this so far. You read through the Old Testament, and it's thousands of years, thousands of years of failure after failure, and now we have something different. In a sense, the spell has been broken. There's a glitch in the matrix, okay? A different figure has come and done something radically different than everyone else, and that's good news. But that's just good news part one. What we see in verses 10 through 18 here is that Jesus hasn't come and conquered and then just left the rest of us to fall and fail and drown in our sins, he comes and conquers in a way that actually restores us to our original position as well. So, so the king of glory actually shares his glory with his people. So again, God is in the business of bringing sons to glory, whether it's in creation or redemption, God is about the business of bringing sons to glory. And Jesus is the one crowned with glory and honor. And, and because we're in Christ, we who were slaves doomed to death, we can now be crowned too. We, we can be restored to the position we were originally created to be in. And, and, and in a sense, it's even better because we're restored to our original position with Christ as King. So the result is you, you can be restored to the family of God's image bearers and you can actually bring Him glory. So we also see though in verse 10, if you look at verse 10, you can be a son of glory because, because Jesus became perfect through suffering. 
Now, this is a little bit counterintuitive. It's, a, it's meant to be a little bit shocking, right? The author of Hebrews puts, puts Jesus on display clearly as God in chapter 1, and then we have here in chapter 2 saying he was made perfect through suffering. Well, to be God, by definition, is to be perfect. But now he's saying this, this Jesus became perfect through suffering. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be that he became perfect through suffering? Well, here's what it does not mean. Here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that God is deficient in some way, right? That would be just a, a, it, that would not make sense. God, by definition, is, is not deficient. He is, he is full. So it doesn't mean that Jesus was deficient in some way as, as God. It, it does not mean that Jesus had some kind of moral flaw that had to be perfected in some way. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that Jesus is some sort of flawed human being who, who needs to be made perfect in some way. That, that's what's true of us. We're, we're flawed human beings uh, that, that, need to be, that need to be restored and made perfect. That isn't what he's talking about here. Here's what he does mean. Jesus became perfect through suffering. And, and this becomes even more clear as we start to look at the other verses here that follow verse 10. Uh, there's two aspects to who Jesus is, right? So we, we've just established Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. So Jesus has godness, and he also, after he came to earth, he has humanity. And, and it's, in, it's only in Jesus' humanity that he becomes perfect. So that's just the first thing to clarify, first of all. In his humanity, that is where he becomes perfect. But how? Well, so he's, he's like us. When he becomes a human, he becomes just like us. As a human, Jesus grows and matures, right? Uh, we celebrate at Christmas. He's, he's born as a baby, and at the end of his life, he's a full-grown adult. So there is, there is growth and maturity just like there is for uh, human beings just like us. So like us, he grows and matures. Like us, in a sinful world, he also suffers. He also experiences uh, trouble. He also experiences toil. He also ex- he experiences adversity. And also like us as a human... He experiences temptation. He suffers temptation. This is where he's a little bit different than us, though, right? Because as a human, Jesus faces temptation, and he conquers temptation again and again and again. And, and, and he, as he conquers temptation, he, he, this, is, this is suffering. Okay? He, so he conquers temptation even, even in his suffering. So there's a sense in which temptation is a suffering in and of itself, and then there's a sense in which you can encounter temptation as you suffer, right? This, and it's even more difficult to endure temptation when you're suffering. It's one thing to, to do the right thing when things are going right. It's another thing uh, to be holy and righteous when, when there's adversity in your life. So, so but what's, what's the difference here between Jesus at, say, age 10 and Jesus at age 30? Here's, here's the difference. The difference is, at age 30, Jesus has experienced significantly more temptation than he has at age 10. He's, he's experienced uh, what we experience in a fallen world more. He has conquered many more temptations. He has endured many more sufferings faithfully at age 30 than he did at age 10. Again, in, in his humanity. Then this all culminates in his, uh, his conquering the temptation to not go to the cross. So, so this is the sense in which he's made perfect by suffering. The, the t- by the time Jesus goes to the cross, uh, he has one thing that he lacked as a baby in the manger. Right? And it's, it's, it's suffering. And it's enduring and conquering and being victorious in the midst of temptation. So this suffering allows Jesus to be a perfect Savior in a number of ways. And th- we're looking at the three ways this morning. So the first way is that he can, he can bring us, he can restore us as sons of glory. He can restore us to what we were originally created to be. But the other two here, it also allows him to adopt us as brothers into the family of God. And it also allows him to rescue us from the captivity that we're, we're currently in. So let's, let's go next to verse 11 here. And look at what it looks like for Jesus because of his perfect, because he attains perfection through suffering to adopt us as brothers. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So we got two different groups 
here. Group one, you have he who sanctifies. This is Jesus. Jesus is the sanctifier. And you have those who are sanctified. Okay, this is the church. This is, this is believers. So two different groups. But the point is they're united in this way that they all have one source. They share this common humanity. Uh, they share enough to tie them together intimately so that they're, they're the same. And it's not that there's no distinction, of course, right? Jesus is the sanctifier. The church is those who are sanctified. But, but there's this, there's this uniting, uh, together in the same source, the same humanity. And we read in verse 11, or of course, I guess it's verse 12, uh, or verse 11 going into verse 12. Because Jesus and the church share one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus calls those he sanctifies brothers. Now, family in the Bible is, is, is a huge theme that, that starts all the way back in the beginning and carries all the way through to the end, this, this theme of family. From the very beginning, God has characterized himself as a kind of father of his people uh, and his children. And so he, and he's forming this kind of spiritual family where he is the father and he has these uh, these children, these sons and daughters. The problem with these children is, is that they're always disobedient. The problem with these children is that we always reject him as father. We reject him in everything that he is. We reject him as king. Uh, we reject him uh, as, our, as our ruler. We reject him even today in the New Testament as our savior, but we reject him also as, as father. So there's, you read through the Old Testament and it's just one son after another failing as a son until we get to the ultimate son in the New Testament, right? So Jesus arrives on the scene, and Jesus isn't just a son of God. Jesus is the son of God, and Jesus changes everything. Uh, he provides a definitive way for God's people to be restored to their status as God's family members. So through his perfect suffering, through his identifying with us, becoming just like us, he, he can adopt us as brothers. He calls us his brothers. And not just any brother. And in this case, it would be just as, just as legitimate to say brothers and sisters. Uh, this isn't just any family member he, he makes us. He, he's, these are family members he's unashamed of. Alright? So this means that Jesus doesn't associate with us like you might associate with Aunt Judy. Right? You know, you know Aunt Judy. Everyone has an Aunt Judy. Aunt Judy is, is the one who's, is a member of your extended family who's always a little bit more excited to see you than you are to see see her. Uh, she's probably you know always just offering a little bit more physical affection than you're uh, interested in expressing toward her. She's the one who brings the lime green Jello to Thanksgiving every year with the shredded carrots on the top. We're not always really excited to identify with Aunt Judy. Everyone has an Aunt Judy in the family. I don't have an Aunt Judy, of course. All my aunts are wonderful. But I'm told that everyone, everyone else has an Aunt, Aunt Judy. There's people, there's family members in your life who you are more and less excited to identify with, who you are more and less ashamed of or, or proud of, I suppose, in, in the positive light. Jesus does not associate with us like you might associate with Aunt Judy. Jesus associates with us in a way that's he's, he's unashamed to call us his brother. And this is underscored by two Old Testament texts. The author of Hebrews quotes two Old Testament texts. So if you look at verses 12 and 13, he quotes first Psalm 22, 22, and then he quotes second in verse 13, he quotes Isaiah 8, 17, and 18. And without diving completely into those texts, it's interesting. Both of those texts in one sense represent Jesus' death, and the other one is in the context of prophecies about Jesus' birth. So Psalm 22 deals with Jesus' death. Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Uh, from a New Testament perspective, it was a, this was an Old Testament perspective. This is about David. David wrote this, and it's about David's struggles and then victory. But from a New Testament perspective, uh, this, this is about Jesus' suffering on the cross and then victory over sin and death. Jesus, uh, it's Psalm 22 that Jesus quotes from the cross. Psalm 22 starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You probably associate those words more with Jesus, and, and you actually, that's good, you, you should. But those words are from Psalm 22. 
So there's a sense in which just as David called on his biological family members, the the people of, of Israel, to praise God with him after his victory, so Jesus calls on his spiritual family members to praise God with him after his ultimate victory. Jesus is unashamed to call his brothers brothers and to worship them after his victory. The other, in verse 13, he quotes Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. Both of those little sentences are from Isaiah 8. I will put my trust in him. His verse comes in verse 17 of Isaiah 8. And then behold, I and the children God has given me is Isaiah 8, 18. And again, without diving into the context, which is fascinating, uh, just as Isaiah the prophet and, and, and a very small group of God's people who he calls children here, just as Isaiah and God's children hoped in God, so Jesus, the great prophet, and all of God's children hope in God. Jesus is unashamed to call us brothers. He's unashamed to call God's children brothers. And, and, and we can't miss the fact that this is an unbelievable honor. It's an unbelievable honor. Christians are people who were once enemies of God. Enemies of God. Now they are unashamed members of God's family. You couldn't have a greater contrast. So to become a Christian, to become a Christian is to be welcomed into the, is to be welcomed into a family. That, that's what it's like. That's, that's, that's one way to conceptualize what it's like to become a Christian. It's to be welcomed into a family. And just, just, con- just contrast this for a second with other worldviews. Just contrast this with any other religion you might be aware of or know a little bit about. Of all the things that the God of the universe, who should judge you for your guilt, of all the things he might call you, would, would you ever guess he might call you son or daughter or brother or child. It's such, it's such intimate and personal and, uh, and nurturing language. It would be an honor if he called you employee. It'd be an honor if he called you servant. And, and there's the sense that that's, that's another thing that we are, but that's not all he calls us. He, he calls us family members. He calls us children and he does so without shame. Jesus is unashamed to call us brothers. So, so Jesus' suffering, the perfection he attains through suffering allows him, allows him to restore us as sons of glory and it allows him to adopt us as members of the family of God. But that's great. But maybe the question is, how does one actually transfer from being an enemy of God to being a son of God? How do you transfer from being one deserving judgment to being a child of God who receives grace and mercy? Well, we see the answer to this here in verses 14 through 18. Jesus' perfection through suffering also allows him to rescue us as captives of Satan and death. So we look at verse verses 14 and 15. As our brother, Jesus partook of the same things as us, the same flesh and blood as us. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is why Christmas is not a small holiday. Uh, regardless of how you feel about Christmas and reindeer and, and Coca-Cola polar bear commercials and all the hoopla around Christmas, uh, what Christians celebrate at Christmas, uh, if, if we abandon what we celebrate at Christmas, we abandon Christianity. It is, it, it is essential to Christianity. It is at the core of Christianity that God in Christ took on flesh and blood. He, he shared in flesh and blood. He didn't merely partake of things similar to flesh and blood, similar to humanity. The text says he, he partook of the same things. So Christ came, he became completely human. He, he did so in a way that didn't compromise his divinity, but he became completely human. As, as a complete human, who became perfect through suffering, became a perfect Savior through suffering, the verses 14 and 15 show that he did two things. He destroyed Satan, and he delivered those 
who are subject to lifelong slavery. Let's, let's look at those. He destroyed Satan. Satan who has the power of death is what it says. How did Satan get the power of death? Well, Satan gets the power of death starting in Genesis 3 and then onward after that. He, he gains the power of by death by, by seducing human beings to sin, which brings, which brings death. So because Satan gets you to sin, because he can entice you to sin, because he, he leads you to sin and then and you choose to sin, because he does that, he can do that, and sin brings death, he has the power of death. He has power over power of death over us. So that's how he, he gets he gets death. And remember, Psalm 8 and Genesis 1, we're created to live in royalty. We're created to live in complete dominion. Instead, we die. And we die in Satan's domain. So that's how Satan gains the power of death. How does he lose the power of death? Well, death, the interesting thing about death, death dies through death. Death dies through death. The text says, through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death. So Satan is dethroned by Jesus' death. Well, well, why? Because Jesus' death is different, right? Jesus' death, once again, this is a different person who's, who's come. This is, this is a game changer. This is a spell being broken person. Jesus comes and he dies a different death than anyone has ever died before. Jesus dies as a genuine human, but he dies as a human who is perfect. He dies as a genuine human who has never sinned. He suffered, he was tempted, but he never sinned. Therefore, Satan is dethroned. He, he, he loses the power of death. So Jesus' perfect suffering allows him to destroy the devil. And it also, verse 15, allows him to deliver those subject to lifelong slavery through the fear of death. Through the fear of death. How, how does death make us slaves? Ever thought of yourself as a slave of death before? How does death make us slaves? So, again, thinking about Genesis 1, Psalm 8, what we're originally created to be. We're created to rule the world. We're created to exercise an, an, a tremendous amount of freedom, ruling, exercising dominion over God's world. But because of death, humans cannot rule God's world. And instead, we're ruled over by God's world. There, there's, there's slavery. And, and death is the key ingredient here, right? Death is the key enemy. It, it, it's death that ends dominion. So even after the fall, even whatever fraction of dominion we, we can muster up to try to exercise, ultimately it, it, it ends for every single person in death. And, and not only that, it ends in death, and then death is the point where we meet God's righteous judgment for, for who we are and for what, we, what we've done. So death, soberingly, death haunts us at every moment of our lives. Every human being is haunted at every single moment by death. Your life is never not eclipsed by the shadow of death. I'm not trying to be morbid here, just being completely realistic. Your life is always, even in your most joyful moments, death looms in the background and whispers a scream that says, this won't last. This won't last. Even our happiest moments eclipse by the shadow of death. There, there's two different ways to die, you know. There's, there's, two, there's, there's two ways to live and there's two ways to die. One way to die is, is in your own sins. If you die in your sins, death is an obligation. You're, you're obligated to die. Because of sin, you're obligated to die, right? This is, this is Satan's domain. He has the power of death, and because you sin, you're obligated to die. He loves that truth more than any other one, probably. <clears throat> the other way to die is Jesus dies for you, and death is no longer an obligation, Death's no longer an implication. Okay, so two different ways to die. One of these ways is characterized by fear. One of these is not characterized by fear at all. One, you're obligated to die. The other one, you're not obligated to die. And then just to clarify here, we, we currently right now live in this already not yet perplexing time between the times, right? Already Jesus has died and been raised victorious, but not yet is the new heavens and the new earth 
here, right? So there's, there's, but there's still two ways to die, even though we're in this, even though everyone dies in this already not yet. And one way is to die as a slave in fear. The other way to die, you pick one, is to die as a brother of Christ in, in joy. Maybe this morning you ought to be much more afraid of death than you currently are. Maybe. Or if, if you're a Christian, maybe you're, uh, maybe you're inconsistent with how afraid of death you, you are. If, if you're in Christ, there, there should not be, death should not be something characterized by fear for you. Now, death is horrible. It's not that it's not characterized by, by, with sadness and, and tremendous loss and, and despair and the fact that this is, this is something that's awful. But it's something that shouldn't be characterized by fear. However, on the other hand, Maybe you're someone who should fear death much more than you actually do. We see in verse 16, not only does Jesus deliver us, not only does he destroy Satan and deliver us from captivity to death, he also he helps the offspring of Abraham. <clears throat> verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Angels have played a very big role here in chapters 1 and 2 of, of Hebrews. Uh, he, the author takes great lengths in chapter 1 to show that Jesus is greater than all the mighty angels. Uh, Jesus is much greater than angels. Then we see in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 2 that the world to come is not subjected to angels. It's actually subjected to those who are lower than angels. The, the world to come is actually subjected to the people of God, or in this case, the offspring of Abraham. So the author's just uh, reiterating here, Jesus did not become an angel in order to save angels. Jesus took on human flesh and blood in order to save, in order to save humans, in particular the offspring of Abraham. And, and, and ever since Genesis 12, God has been in the business of, of blessing the offspring of Abraham. And we've been seeing in Galatians 3 and, and Sam's preaching how uh, we today become spiritual offspring of Abraham in in Christ by becoming God's people by by faith. When we look at verse 17, Jesus doesn't just be, take on flesh and blood to destroy Satan and deliver us. He doesn't just take on flesh and blood in order to uh, in order to help the offspring of Abraham as our brother. Verse 17, Jesus made propitiation for sins as a qualified high priest. <clears throat> Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every Respect. Here again, we're, we're emphasizing Jesus' humanity. Jesus becoming human. He becomes like us in every respect. And what does this do? This qualifies him to be a high priest. This qualifies him to serve as a priest. Priests are people who mediate God's presence with God's people. They stand between God and God's people, and they offer sacrifices. They make propitiation for people's sins. Propitiation, when you hear that word, you should just think wrath absorber. Uh, the, the concept of propitiation is just uh, satisfying God's righteous anger and, and taking away sins. This is what a priest does. They stand between God and people. They offer sacrifices that satisfy God's wrath and make it so that God can be close to his people without devouring them because of because of their sin. So that, that's what priests do. And because Jesus becomes a humanity, he takes on humanity in every respect, he can serve as a priest. And then as our high priest, he makes propitiation for sins. He does so in a unique way because he makes propitiation in a complete and final way so that there's never a propitiation that has to be made again. Atonement does not need to be made again. As high priest, he, act, he, he offered a sacrifice that could completely take away sins. He, he offered himself. So, so through Jesus' death, God's wrath is satisfied. Through Jesus' death, sins are taken away and forgiveness is offered. And then as our final and ultimate high priest, Jesus offers propitiation for sin. I can't imagine, I can't imagine referring to anyone as a priest after Jesus, the great priest, has come. I can't imagine can't imagine asking that title for myself or, or attributing it to anyone else. The great high priest has come and made propitiation for sins, has satisfied God's wrath because of sin. So God's purpose is to share 
his glory with sons of glory. His purpose from the very beginning has been to bring sons of glory to share in his glory. And in order to do this for sinners, he must become a perfect savior through suffering. And by suffering, Jesus relates to us in every way. He adopts us as brothers and he frees us from slavery. And all of this, all together that we've seen here, at least in 10 through 17, allows him to give us the ability to do something we could never do as sinners. He gives us the ability to do something we've never been able to do before, and that is glorify God. Because of Jesus' perfect suffering, you can glorify God. You can live for the glory of God and not yourself or something else, which is what we do by nature in our sin. Verse 18, Jesus' suffering allows him to help us. For because he himself has suffered and tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's a necessity to glorify God. Uh, It's an obligation of everything to glorify God. Verse 10 says, all things exist for him. They exist for his glory. Uh, It's not an option. It's an absolute necessity to glorify God because you're something, you're someone who's been created by God. And then we see in verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Sanctification is is just the process of glorifying God more and more and more. So to be sanctified, to, to reach sanctification, become completely sanctified is to reach the point where you are free of sin and you're actually able to bring glory to God. So if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you're, if you're a, a brother of Christ, if you're a, a freed captive of death, if you're a restored son of glory, the text says, verse 11 says, you will be sanctified. You will be sanctified. Another way to say this, maybe a little bit more sobering way to say this, if your life doesn't glorify God, you aren't a Christian. By definition, if your life doesn't glorify God, you aren't a Christian. This, this is why the continual presence of sin in our lives should trouble us. It, it's, it's troubling. We, we should be uncomfortable with the continual presence of sin in our lives because Christians are people who glorify God because of what Christ has done. So we should be troubled by the sin in our lives, but there is good news. There is very, very, very good news. If you're someone this morning who is struggling with sin. If you're someone who hears the words, if you're a Christian, you must glorify God. If you don't glorify God, you're not a Christian. And something comes into your mind that makes you nervous. If there's a struggle in your life, if you are aware of ongoing sin, if you're struggling with sin, I I have good news based on this text for you this morning. The good news is this. God has moved toward you. God has moved toward you, not away from you, in your sin. Now, don't get me wrong. Your sin is repulsive to God. It's offensive to God. It it reeks to God. It would be completely right for God to back away from you and judge you for your sin, but that's not what God does. Even though we sin, God has moved toward us. God has placed himself in a very unique position for sinners. He, he, he has come and he has actually shared in our flesh and blood in a way that it is completely reasonable that he understands our struggle. He has compassion on us in our struggle. He can help us in our struggle. As, as I reflected on this this week, I was overwhelmed by the fact that realizing I am not like this. I am not like God in this way. I was thinking about my children who are now four and two and zero. The zero doesn't quite apply, but the four and the two-year-old do. I am not like God. And here's how I'm not like God. I do not tend to move toward my children when they're reckless. I tend to not move toward my children when they're careless and disobedient, when they're obstinate and irreverent. And they, and they, they, 
<laughs> they give me opportunities every day, it seems. But when, when they're disobedient and reckless and careless, I do not find myself inclined to move towards them. I find myself inclined to, to move away from them. I find myself quick to claim my authority and my rights with them. They ought to be obeying me. I find myself very quick, I'm embarrassed to say this, to be condes- condescending towards them when they're disobedient and, and careless. I, I, find, I even find myself quick to be sarcastic with them when they offend me. I have good news for you this morning. God is not like me. God, God is not like that. In our sin, God moves towards us. He, he, he has moved into our presence. He isn't condescending with us. He has condescended to us, and he has served us. Jesus isn't sarcastic with us. Jesus came and he was honest with us, honest about who we are and what our struggle is and, and, and what we really need. Jesus seeks to help sinners in their sin and temptation. How does he do this? Verse 10, we, we see that Jesus is the founder of salvation, is what uh, he's called, the founder of salvation. Other translations uh, I have in your Bible call him the pioneer of salvation. It's, it's the sense in which he's the leader of salvation. He is leading the way as the founder and the pioneer. He, he has made a way for salvation where there once was, where there once was, once was no way and we are helped as we follow him where he leads. So we, we are helped as we follow Jesus, the conqueror of temptation. He's the conqueror of temptation. He, he has stood fast in the midst of temptation after temptation after temptation. And, and as a result, he, he's a perfect savior because he understands temptation. He actually understands it even better than we do, which is Maybe a little bit surprising. You might think, yeah, he just conquered it every time. We're much more familiar with temptation because we're tempted and we, we fail. But it's actually because he conquered it, he's more familiar with it. The way temptation works for us is tempted and fail, right? Or maybe it's a little bit of that, tempted, 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 and then fail. By the grace of God, sometimes it's tempted, 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 conquer. Praise God for those moments. But that is not how it works every time. Jesus understands temptation better because for him, every single one Temptation, 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 victory. Temptation, 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 conquered it. Temptation, 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 beat it. Jesus understands temptation way different than we do. So we, he helps us as, as, we, as we follow him. This is why it's so important to become familiar with Jesus. Immerse yourself in knowing Jesus. Read the gospel. Understand how the whole Bible points to Jesus. There, there is nothing more relevant to our lives than becoming intimately familiar with Jesus so that we can follow him. We, we see how he responds to temptation. We see how he responds to suffering. He also, though, helps us. He helps those who are tempted in the fact that he's the defeater of sin. He helps us in that he takes away the consequences of our sin. He takes away the consequences of our sin because he became like us. He suffered like us. He became the perfect Savior as he defeated temptation after temptation after temptation to make us, and we should remember this in temptation, to make us brothers of Christ, to make us freed captives of death, and to make us sons of glory. We, we all have the desire for perfection. We want perfection. We want to master things. And if listen, if you can spend 10,000 hours and 10 years practicing something to master it, and if you can do it to the glory of God, do it. That's that's great. And actually, because of Christ, we're actually free to be able to do that. We're actually free to be able to master something, not for our glory, but for God's glory. So if you can do that, fantastic. Go for it to the glory of God. But, but, praise God for this. Praise God for the fact that the universe is not founded on the principle of practice makes perfect. Oh, we, we, would, we would drown. We would drown in that world of practice makes perfect. Praise God. God does not require perfection from us. He does not require a certain amount of hours before he approves of you. 10,000 hours wouldn't be nearly enough 
for us to get there. Praise God. He does not require a certain amount of time before he approves of us because 10 years wouldn't be nearly enough. Jesus took on flesh and became perfect through suffering so he could make you, based on his own merits, a son of glory, someone who can truly bring glory to God, a brother of Jesus Christ, someone who's part of the family, the intimate, close family of God, and a freed captive of sin and death, one who no longer needs to live in the fear of death and in slavery to death. It's true that practice makes perfect. That's just a, it's, that's true in a sense. That's one of the ways that the world works. But it is perfection through suffering. It's perfection through suffering that we're going to sing about and praise God for for eternity. Not practice makes perfect. So, whose glory do you live for? Whose glory do you live for? Hebrews two ten through eighteen admonishes us, live for the one who restores you, adopts you, and rescues you. Let's pray. Father, our our sin is so great. It really is even beyond our full comprehension. Because we're not perfect like you. We, We can't understand how offensive our guilt is before you. Our, our, how, how offensive our selfishness is. How offensive our idolatry is before you. All we know is that it must be serious. It must be incredibly serious because our sin brings about death. And it brings it for every single human being who's ever lived. And, and we can only imagine the horror of what It's like to stand before you in our guilt, a perfect judge. But Lord, we, we also know that our salvation is also beyond comprehension. Who, who could imagine what you've done for us? We, we could not have written this story, restoring sons of glory, adopting wayward children, rescuing captive people from their enemy. You you have gloriously moved toward us in our sin. You haven't moved away from us. You, you, you help us when we're tempted. We, we praise you for being a God who helps those who are tempted. How, how deep is your love for us? How, how vast and beyond all measure You've given your only son to make wretches your treasure. We, we know that it was costly. We, we know that you were wounded and you were marred in order to bring many sons to glory. God, would you help us to receive your grace so that we can live for your glory and not our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.